Today was a landmark day for Democrats in Congress. These are the leaders of the Democratic Party in the House of Representatives from the year 1827 to the year 2000. And you will notice that a lot of them look a lot alike. But in 2003, Democrats elected California Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi as their leader in the House. She was the first woman to lead either party in either chamber of Congress. And today, Democrats elected New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries as their leader in the House. He is the first black person to lead either party in either chamber of Congress. Yes, it is frustratingly slow progress, but it is still progress, and that should be celebrated. And that alone, that alone, seeing Hakeem Jeffries right there, that makes today one for the history books. But today was also a landmark day for Congress because today, after years and years of litigation, Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee finally got their hands on former President Trump's tax returns. You may remember that President Trump refused to publicly release his tax returns, breaking a precedent followed by literally every other modern president. So back in 2019, the Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee, they requested Trump's returns to make sure he was complying with federal law and that the IRS was treating President Trump like they treat everyone else. And now, today, after all that time, Democrats in the House finally have them, the tax returns. We have no idea what exactly the committee plans to do with them or whether any of the details will be made public, but with Republicans set to take control of the House come January, whatever decision the committee makes, it will have to be a quick one. So again, That alone might be a big deal day for Democrats in Congress. But today is also a day to remember because today the House January 6th committee interviewed its final witness, Republican Speaker of the Wisconsin State House, Robin Voss. Now, Robin Voss himself is an interesting character in the January 6th committee saga. Voss claims that President Trump called him this year, the year 2022, in July, to try to get him to retroactively overturn the results of the 2020 election in his state. There's obviously a lot to unpack here, like how deeply concerning it is that President Trump was trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election as recently as four months ago. But I think the bigger deal here is that the January 6th committee is done, or at least they are done with the investigative and evidence-gathering part of their work. The committee anticipates that they will release their final report, the culmination of all that work, before Christmas, which is pretty soon. Now, having an authoritative historical record of exactly what happened last year, that matters a ton. But it isn't just history the committee has left to write. There are also actionable decisions the committee has to make, such as whether to make criminal referrals. For example, there are five Republican lawmakers who refused to comply with the committee's subpoenas. Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, and of course, Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy. It is a live question about which of them, if any of them, the committee might refer for criminal charges for their lack of cooperation. And then there's the potential that the committee could submit criminal referrals for perjury or witness tampering. When asked by Politico today if he believed any particular witness had committed perjury, the chairman of the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, replied simply, stay tuned. Thompson also told Politico today that we shouldn't expect this all to be coming out in dribs and drabs, but rather as a massive evidence dump at some point in the holiday season. So buckle up. We are in terra incognita. We are in new territory here. This is the moment right now where the January 6th committee decides how to pass the baton to the Department of Justice. 
And yesterday, the Department of Justice secured two seditious conspiracy convictions against members of the Oath Keepers militia for their role in the January 6th attack. Those convictions, the first seditious conspiracy convictions in decades, they could carry up to 20 years in prison for each of the Oath Keepers convicted. And those convictions are proof that the Department of Justice can win accountability from individuals on behalf of the larger conspiracy, which is certainly a pretty compelling backdrop as the DOJ and Merrick Garland received this baton from the January 6th committee. If the January 6th committee does decide to submit criminal referrals, those would go to the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland. Garland would then have a decision to make. Should those matters be handled individually or should they be handed to the newly appointed special counsel, Jack Smith, who is overseeing the larger investigation into Trump and his role in January 6th and the attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And then either Garland or Jack Smith will have to make an even bigger decision. Do they prosecute? This is no longer hypothetical. It is no longer academic. The ball is in the DOJ's court. Now I want to turn to Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration. Matt, thanks so much for joining me this evening. Given everything that's happening here, this kind of moment we're in, which is not an interregnum, but this kind of, I don't want to say limbo, this key moment when the J6 committee hands it over to the DOJ. How do you think the seditious conspiracy convictions that the DOJ received yesterday How does that inform all of this when we look at potential other targets in in terms of January 6th criminal investigations and prosecution? I think it was a historic victory for the Justice Department, one they deserve real credit for. You know, there was real internal debate inside DOJ about whether they ought to bring these charges or ought to just stick with lesser charges like they had brought against uh, uh, other January 6th defendants. And I have no doubt that's a call that ultimately went up to the Attorney General and that Merrick Garland made the decision to to take the gamble, take the risk uh, to bring these these serious charges with and, and take the and take the real risk that they might lose in court, as they did with three of the defendants. But knowing that that they had serious charges and ultimately they were they were proven uh, correct with two of them that's a real marker for history and I think it puts the wind at the department's sails but if you're the Department of Justice and you've just come through this tumultuous period where you have you know investigated hundreds and hundreds of individuals and brought hundreds and hundreds of charges and taken a no- number of them now to trial and you have other seditious conspiracy trials about to start and you still have investigations underway there's a, a way to feel like the last two years you've had this this you've been through a major amount of work and had tremendous accomplishments. But I have the feeling that the last two years are going to look like nothing compared to the two years that the department has ahead of it when you look at not just the other regular January 6th defendants that, that, that are facing trial and that they're still investigating, but of course the big question about what the department does about the former president Donald Trump. And that's of course leaving aside the Mar-a-Lago investigation, which is an entirely other thread that they continue to pull. So for all the work that they have done, uh, they really haven't seen nothing when, when you compare the work they're going to have to do the next two years. At the same time, they face a hostile Republican House of Representatives nosing around in their business and trying to interfere in their investigations and prosecutions every way that they can. Matt, how does the handshake work in this instance between the January 6th committee and its findings and the Department of Justice? There has been some reported tension in terms of share, uh, the sharing of transcripts. That tension seems to have gone away or have been minimized. But I mean, if, if the January 6th committee makes criminal referrals 
Is that something that the Department of Justice is going to have to then move forward with? I mean, to what degree does the January 6th committee's assessment here and their referrals, how much does that matter in terms of the DOJ's next move? So the department will make its own assessments about whether any criminal statutes were violated and whether they can sustain any any um, uh, charges in court. But they do take these referrals very seriously. Whenever the department gets a referral from Congress, they they assign uh, that case to prosecutors and, and FBI agents who look at the evidence and decide whether it's enough to warrant charges. So in every case uh, that they get a referral, let's say if, if they do get referrals, we don't know that yet, but I think it, it's likely that they will. Uh, those will all be assigned to someone in the department who will look through uh, with every potential defendant and, and decide whether, in fact, a law was broken. And I think one of the tricky things about these referrals from Congress is, you know, the department has now bifurcated the January 6th case with the appointment of Jack Smith as a special prosecutor, where Jack Smith is kind of the U.S. attorney for Donald Trump. He'll handle anything that involves Donald Trump, whether it's the Mar-a-Lago case or whether it's January 6th charges. And all the other January 6th defendants, uh, the ones who are at the Capitol anyway, are continue to be handled by the U.S. attorney's uh, office for D.C. So in some ways, those cases are, of course, going to intersect with each other. And you're going to have this overlap where I think some of them will be uh, investigated by the U.S. Attorney's Office and some of them will be investigated by the special prosecutor. And they will obviously have to work work with each other inside the department and ultimately flow their recommendations up to the deputy attorney general and the attorney general. How do you think that's going to work if they make criminal referrals for members of Congress? I mean, we mentioned the five Republican congressmen who did not cooperate with the committee. I mean, how does that fit in with Jack Smith's purview or how does it not fit in with how does that sort of separation work? I suspect that if they do get referrals for members of Congress, the Justice Department will be very hesitant to look at criminal charges for them. They will probably look at this as an internal matter for Congress, um, that, that if Congress really wanted to, to take action against members of the House for not complying with House subpoenas, that they could have pursued ethics committee charges. They're, they're discipline that Congress itself can take and they haven't taken. So I think while they may look seriously at criminal charges at, at some after some referrals, that's one where I think the Department would kind of look to Congress and say, you know, you have a duty uh, in, in your own instance. You have a duty in the first instance here to police misconduct by your own members yourself. I just wonder how I mean, it, there is the committee's a specific animal insofar as so much of the work was made public. These hearings were primetime televised events. We've talked a lot about them on this show and this network. And the American public has sort of calcified its opinion of, of who these bad actors are, if you will, even if they haven't been convicted in the court. And, and given that, I would assume that there's probably a fair amount of pressure on the DOJ to do something here and to follow up on Congress's recommendations in some meaningful fashion, if for nothing else, because the American public to some degree will demand it, but also because if you look back at, for example, the Mueller investigation, where nothing effectively amounted to anything in, in the court of public opinion, I believe. Um, this has to be different, does it not? It does. Look, I think the January 6th committee has done incredibly important work. Um, not just, and if, if we never saw criminal charges come out of their work, the work they've done has still been important for, for bringing, for shedding light on what happened and bringing public accountability. You know, jail time and, and, and convictions are not the only kind of accountability in this country. Um, uh, you know, public shame has a real effect. Keeping people from getting important jobs in the government again can have a real effect. So their work has been important. It's been important for history. Um, but it will also be important 
important if they lead to criminal charges. And I suspect they've uncovered evidence through their investigations that the department didn't have. Um, we see the department very much wants to get a hold of the transcripts of their interviews so they can get they can get their hands on some of that evidence. And I think we will see um, you know serious investigations grow out of the committee's work. I think much of the the investigation that the department is doing into the former president's involvement in January 6th and whether he has criminal liability directly flows from evidence that the the the, the January 6th committee turned up and made public in those hearings that all of us watched and that we know the prosecutors were watching and that the attorney general himself, I suspect, was, was watching very, very closely. Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration. Always great to talk with you, Matt. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Coming up next, a tentative labor deal that would avoid a potentially crippling strike by the country's rail, rail workers. It passed the House today and now it heads to the Senate. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins me with the Biden administration's response on all that. And later this hour, for most Americans, the justices of the Supreme Court are unreachable and they are inaccessible. But new reporting sheds light on the wildly under-examined relationship between conservative justices and special interest groups. Stay with us. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Last night, the nation braced for a coast-to-coast -coast rail strike. Today, most of America's trains are not running. The rail companies and unions are trading accusations, and Congress is under pressure to step in. When President Bush's point man, Republican Transportation Secretary Andrew Card, went to Capitol Hill, asking for Congress to order an end to the strike today, Democrats, who control the House and Senate, balked. We have to be prepared to act in America's best interest and act quickly. My fear is that we have a contrived national emergency. You're coming here and telling Congress to shut down the collective bargaining process. No, I'm asking Congress to meet its responsibility for the national economy. That was NBC Nightly News from June of 1992. Railroad workers across the country had just gone on strike and that had major implications for the national economy. President George H.W. Bush was pushing Congress to help end that strike by passing a bill that would allow Congress to force those railroad workers back to work. And you heard in that clip how some Democrats opposed forcing an end to the strike out of fear that it would punish railroad workers who were just fighting for better working conditions. But in the end, Congress did pass that bill to end the strike. It passed with bipartisan support in both the House and Senate, with just a handful of pro-labor Democrats voting against it. One of those pro-labor Democrats was Delaware Senator Joseph R. Biden. Now, today, President Biden 
President Biden finds himself in a very different position. The nation is on the verge of yet another major railroad strike with cataclysmic economic effects. So the Biden administration is asking Congress to step in and to force those workers to accept a deal that they previously rejected. If a deal isn't reached, it could mean disaster for an economy that's already been hobbled by supply chain issues resulting from the pandemic. Complicating all of this is the fact that the railroad workers' demands are basically pretty utterly reasonable. Their chief demand in these negotiations is for the railroad companies to provide them with paid sick leave, something workers in many other industries already get. Rail workers currently get zero paid sick days for short-term illness. Now, the deal being pushed by the Biden administration would offer them only one day of additional paid sick leave to use if they're sick. Part of the reason the rail companies don't want to offer more sick days is because they now have a much smaller workforce to fill those vacancies. Since the 1990s, the railroad industry has implemented reforms that dramatically reduced its workforce while, at the same time, boosting profits for shareholders. The New York Times reports that at one major rail carrier, the number of employees plunged by a third over the past decade, expanding the company's profit margins and pushing its stock up over 300%. But in the meantime, employees are still human beings who get sick. This is how rail workers describe their situation to the pro-labor news organization, More Perfect Union. We're considered essential employees and we don't have a single paid sick day to use uh, when we're off. We've worked through the pandemic. We were considered essential and now it seems like we're expendable. We're constantly coming to work sick and exhausted. We routinely work 14 hours and longer every day. We have currently lost two BMW members in the past few weeks, and they might have been here today with us if they would have just been able to, you know, rest and reset. Today, the House of Representatives passed the bill to force an end to the strike, but it also passed a subsequent bill to provide rail workers with seven days of paid sick sick leave. Those bills now head to the Senate, where they will need 60 votes to pass. But a coalition of Democrats, from progressives like Bernie Sanders to moderates like John Hickenlooper, they say any bill passed by the Senate needs to include seven days of sick leave for rail workers. So what can the Biden administration do to avert national catastrophe? Joining us now is Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you so much for joining us. I I just want to get right to these two bills we have uh, passing to the upper chamber. Is it the position of the administration that this deal should not pass without seven days of paid sick leave for rail workers? So the position of the administration is that we need to enact this tentative agreement and avoid the possibility of a rail shutdown. I want to make sure it's it's understood from a transportation perspective that uh, a rail shutdown wouldn't just shut down the trains. It would effectively shut down the country. There is no... system for a freight rail system. So within a matter of days, you could see, for example, chlorine not reaching water treatment plants and people in American cities being told uh, they have to boil water or use bottled water. Uh, We would see the auto industry effectively shut down uh, within uh, potentially a couple days at some facilities because they don't have that many parts on hand. We estimate about 765,000 workers would be laid off within two weeks of a rail shutdown taking place, and it would only escalate from there. So it's critically important to the national economy uh, that that shutdown not happen. Now, what we have in terms of what passed today in the House 
soon after and very swiftly after uh, Speaker Pelosi brought it to the floor uh, is a resolution that enacts that tentative agreement that the labor leaders and the company leaders reached at the table uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, there were 12 unions that were party to that, that their leaders agreed to it, uh, but only eight of those unions acted to ratify the deal, which is why we're in this precarious situation right now. Bottom line, have to make sure that something gets to the president's desk quickly, because while the cutoff date is December 9th, you would begin seeing a wind down of things like uh, hazardous shipping, uh, hazardous material shipping, including things like chlorine. That could start as early as this weekend or next week if there's no resolution. So, Mr. Secretary, I think, I, you know, given your articulation of the stakes here, I think we can all appreciate the urgency of getting something done. I'm just having a hard time understanding where you guys are positioned vis-a-vis -vis Senate Democrats. I know that you and the Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, are meeting with Senate Democrats tomorrow. Is it your, will you be encouraging Senate Democrats to pass this with or without the extended sick leave? And by extended, I mean seven days. Well, look, uh, as you know, the president believes in paid leave for all Americans, uh, whether uh, they work in, in railroads or anywhere else. We've been pushing that from day one and we'll continue to push for that. But also, if you look at what is going to be able to get to the president's desk and make it through the Senate, uh, it's pretty clear that the simplest and straightforward way to do that is to enact the tentative agreement that labor leaders and company leaders reached. Uh, that's something that needs to move very quickly because, again, we don't have a lot of time to lose. And what I'll be doing tomorrow with the senators is, is making sure from the transportation perspective, uh, they have an understanding of the things that would begin to happen everywhere from our ports, which would begin to back up until the point where ships could no longer arrive there, uh, to our farms, to our auto factories, to our water treatment plants in the event that there's any kind of shutdown. I guess I wonder, uh, it sounds like you, the tentative agreement, which is the one that is separate from the extended uh, sick leave of seven days, has one day of sick leave in it. I mean, you guys knew what was in this, this deal for weeks. Were you dismayed or at all disappointed that there wasn't more sick leave built in? It's single, it's currently a single day of, of paid sick leave for these rail workers who, if you believe the testimonies we just played, have a fairly difficult working conditions. They do. And uh, they've been under a lot of pressure. They feel that it's difficult to access uh, sick leave paid or unpaid because of the scheduling that they're subjected to. And that is a legitimate concern and one of the many things that the union leaders and company leaders balanced when they reached this tentative deal. But what the deal does have is a 24 percent uh, pay increase over five years, and that's retroactive. Uh, bonuses that I think come to about $5,000 and this added uh paid personal day, which I do want to distinguish is uh, a day of paid personal leave, which is added to what the workers now get, which is, uh, as I understand it, typically uh, up to between three and 12, depending on their seniority and which union they're with. But look, these are legitimate concerns they have about being able to uh, have any of that kind of flexibility. And those are among the different things that labor leaders and company leaders weighed as they came to this tentative agreement. Uh, now that that uh, tentative agreement is on the table and that the House has taken that step to advance that. We really need the Senate to act quickly and get a bill to the president's desk, knowing that uh, it's not perfect, uh, that uh, none of the parties are completely uh, satisfied or got everything that they want in this compromise and in this negotiation. Uh, but also, uh, as has happened, I think, 18 times in the past uh, with Congress uh, using its authority under the Rail uh, Labor Act, uh, we need to make sure there is a solution that does not risk uh, ending the economic growth that we're seeing in America and sending us in the other direction.
Um, Secretary Buttigieg, we've talked a lot about the the rail workers, but what of the rail companies? I mean, part of the reason we're in this predicament is because in the 1990s, they instituted these quote-unquote reforms that dramatically trimmed workforces and increased profits. Does something need to be done here? Is there some kind of oversight or there should be there some, should there be some kind of reform that Congress should be asking of the rail companies so that they can manage their industry the way many other industries manage, which is to give employees paid sick leave? Yeah, so there are a couple of things I think need to be looked at. First of all, across the transportation sector, you do see workers coming under enormous pressure under these models that a lot of the companies have adopted. And we're seeing uh, variations of this, whether we're talking about airline pilots, whether we're talking about workers in rail, uh, where you have fewer and fewer workers, you have less and less uh, cushion in terms of availability. And what that means is uh, more overtime, less flexibility, and uh, being able to use uh, downtime or, or pre-planned, uh, whether it's paid or unpaid, uh, becomes harder and harder. And that's one of the quality of life issues that has really been on, been on the minds of, of rail, railway workers. But the other conversation that we want to have, that we've been having since we got here and that we're not going to relent on, is the idea that every American worker ought to have paid leave, something the president believes need to make the case for, that uh, just about every other country policy uh, creates every worker. And we think that that, that needs to happen uh, in this sector and in every sector. Um, I want to turn the page to something that is decidedly happier news and just get your um, reaction to the passage of the um, Respect for Marriage Act, um, Mr. Secretary, and, and your feelings about that sort of momentous occasion. Well, look, it's uh, obviously very good news to, to see uh, those rights established, to see that uh, Senate Democrats and uh, a handful of Senate Republicans uh, were willing to uh, to vote for that. Uh, I've got to say I received that with mixed emotions, though, just uh, seeing something as uh, fundamental as my marriage coming up for political debate in the first place. Uh, the American people are there. I think 70% of Americans uh, now agree that uh, a marriage, like my marriage to my husband, is as valid as anybody else's and deserves to be protected just as much. Uh, and, uh, you know, this this shouldn't be as hard as it was. But but I applaud the leadership uh, of uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin, uh, Senate Democrats, and those uh, those Republicans who, who crossed the uh, the aisle to do it. I just, uh, there, there's a part of me that really wishes it could have been 100 to nothing. I'm, I'm not uh, naive about why that wasn't the case. But look, our marriage is about, and, and my husband Chaston wrote eloquently about this on, uh, on Medium uh, yesterday. You know, our, our marriage is, is filled with uh, taking care of, of two amazing children. It's, it's filled with getting scrambled eggs off the wall and uh, getting the kids <laughs> dressed and out the door in, in time to make it to daycare uh, and uh, making sure bath time goes all right and, and handling the dogs and the kids and the uh, and our plans and, and, and bills and jobs uh, just like everybody else's marriage. And uh, we should be treated just like everybody else's marriage. That uh, common sense principle uh, carried the day in the Senate. Uh, I hope it becomes law soon and appreciate everybody who's helped to make that a reality. The universal stress of scrambled eggs on the wall. We hear you. We see you. Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Secretary, thank you very much for taking some time to chat with me tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Same here. Coming up, new reporting alleges a secret influence campaign targeting conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Former Supreme Court clerk Melissa Murray joins me to discuss ethical guardrails at the court 
or the lack thereof. But next, election day was more than three weeks ago, but results in a couple of battleground states were still in dispute as of today. We'll have more details right after the break. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. The outcome of the 2022 midterm election is pretty much settled in most states across the country, unless you're living in Arizona. The state's Cochise County Board of Supervisors has refused to certify their county's election results as of Monday, which was the statewide deadline. And that is because its Republican-led elections board doesn't trust the vote tabulation machines they use or the state's process for certifying them. So now they are facing two lawsuits seeking to force the board to do its job. The Cochise Board of Supervisors has, perhaps unsurprisingly, decided to fight these suits. But since county attorney, since the county attorney wanted no part of any of this, the board voted yesterday to hire an outside lawyer. And they picked the guy who represented the Cyber Ninjas, the group who ran the botched partisan so-called audit of the Maricopa County 2020 election results. Yes, really, they picked the Cyber Ninjas guy. The problem is the Cyber Ninjas lawyer is not interested in the job. He and another attorney reportedly declined to take the board's case today. Apparently, the Cyber Ninjas had a better case to make than the Cochise County Board of Supervisors. They have yet to find a single willer, a single lawyer willing to defend them in their court hearing, which is scheduled for tomorrow. In July of 1992, the Democratic convention was underway in New York City. Bill Clinton was the presumptive Democratic nominee, and he was running, among other things, on abortion rights. And while he was in New York, Clinton was also running literally. He was jogging. As he left to jog this morning, Clinton was confronted by a man from Operation Rescue, posing as an autograph seeker. He tried to hand Clinton what appeared to be a four-month-old fetus. Clinton recoiled but continued to greet passersby anyway on his morning in the park. The anti-abortion activist who approached Clinton that day was identified as Harley Blue. But Blue didn't act alone. There were two reverends who helped him pull off this stunt. Mr. Blue and two other abortion opponents, the Reverend Robert Schenck and the Reverend Joseph Foreman, were later arrested and charged with transporting a fetus to New York, removal of human remains from the place of death, and improper disposal of a fetus. It was a crazy, gruesome bit of theater that grabbed public attention. 
But 30 years later, one of those reverends, Robert Schenck, is still making headlines. Earlier this month, Reverend Schenck told the New York Times that as head of an evangelical group, he was behind a wine and dine scheme to gain access to conservative Supreme Court justices in an effort to advance anti-abortion interests. The goal, Schenck told the Times, was to embolden the justices, to lay the legal groundwork for an eventual reversal of Roe v. Wade by delivering unapologetically conservative dissents, basically to target the justices in social settings as a way of convincing them to take fairly unprecedented and broadly unpopular positions, in this case, striking down Roe. Now, whether Reverend Schenck's scheme worked, we don't know, but this is how he did it. What we would attempt to do is match couples, uh, our couples, to justice couples. So kind of feel out personality types, interests, age, uh, station in life, and so forth, and, and, and try our best to be matchmakers. Try to pair up couples where we thought there was a good prospect for a meaningful friendship to develop. And this particular couple really had an innate capacity for understanding human behavior, what bothered those justice couples they interacted with, what their needs were, and they responded to those needs. That couple he's talking about here is Donald and Gail Wright. Through Shank's scheme, the Wrights apparently became close friends with Justice Alito and his wife. They got access to other justices as well. In fact, when Donald Wright died in 2020, his family posted these pictures online, photos with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Antonin Scalia. And then there's that particular one with Justice Alito inside Alito's chambers. The Wrights and the Alitos were introduced through the Wrights' donations to the Supreme Court Historical Society, a nonprofit organization that was apparently used by Schenck as a vehicle to gain access to the Supreme Court. And that access came with instructions. Mr. Schenck gave his stealth missionaries close instruction. The justices were more likely to let their guard down at the Historical Society's annual dinners because they assumed attendees had been properly vetted. This was a well-planned, well-financed strategy to gain access to some of the most powerful people in America. Schenck understood that pressuring politicians was ephemeral. They could be kicked out of office or lose re-election, but Supreme Court justices, they had lifetime tenure. And man, was this strategy effective. Schenck says that the rights became so close to Justice Alito, a guy they casually referred to as Sam, that they learned in advance about the court's decision in the landmark 2014 case Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. The suggestion here (laughs) is that Justice Alito, who authored that decision, leaked the information to his buddies. Now, Alito has denied this, but to some degree, whether Alito leaked the decision isn't actually the most staggeringly inappropriate thing here. What Schenck's story reveals is an established network where people with money who want to access Supreme Court justices in service of their own ideological missions, those people can indeed buy access to Supreme Court justices and maybe even further those ideological missions or at least get some insanely useful information as it pertains to their ideological missions. And so far, no one is stopping this. The rights are still involved with the Supreme Court Historical Society. As of 2021, Gail Wright was listed as a distinguished donor of the society, which is a title given to people who donate between five to $25,000 in any given year. And can you blame her? If a strategy to lobby some of the most influential people in the country has worked this well, why stop now? 
Joining us now is Melissa Murray. She's a professor at New York University School of Law, co-host of the legal podcast, A Must Listen, Strict Scrutiny, and an MSNBC legal analyst. Melissa, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This is, I don't understand why this isn't headline news, like across the country, and it is shocking and it is unacceptable if you believe in the independence of the judiciary. How can this be going on? Well, that is the question. Everyone has been talking about the purported leak in the Burwell versus Hobby Lobby decision, but that's not really the story. That's burying the lead. The real story is this coordinated, highly financed campaign to get access to these justices. And actually, they were successful. They yeah. got access to some of the most conservative justices. We don't know if it shaped the outcome in any decision, but we do know that they had unprecedented access. And there's not just this reporting in the New York Times. There was also reporting earlier this year and Rolling Stone and Politico that talked about these individuals going to chambers at the Supreme Court to pray in chambers with some of these justices. This is a highly coordinated campaign. It should be investigated. It's highly unusual. This is the highest court in the land. This should not be happening. That's making decisions for the huge decisions that affect millions and millions of Americans with no oversight. And I guess I wonder, you know, the federal judiciary, there is a code of ethics that judges have to comply with. In Congress, there's a code of ethics that members of Congress have to apply with, apply, uh, adhere to. Why? What is the likelihood? that any kind of code of ethics can be imposed upon Supreme Court justices. Well, this is part of the institutional design of the Supreme Court, and this is sort of constitutionally ordained. It's meant to be an independent judiciary that's unbiased, unbought by either of the political branches. And for that reason, it sort of stands alone in a lot of ways. So Congress could make rules, but they could never really enforce them. The court itself is a self-policing organism. And the fact that it is self-policing is one of the reasons why this campaign of incredible influence could be so successful because it makes the court permeable and susceptible to these kinds of interests because there's no oversight. What of John Roberts? This is his court. <laughs> I see the smirk on your face. It's not a smirk. <laughs> the smile, the knowing smile. I mean, what happens here? He is the person that is tasked with overseeing this investigation into the leak of the Dobbs opinion, right? Is anything going to happen with that? Is anything going to happen with the news about what happened in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby? I mean, do we have any hope that he cares enough about this to, to actually do the work that he's supposed to be doing? Well, the one thing we know that when the story broke last weekend, that this was really the beginning of John Roberts's horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. This is the last thing that this chief justice wants. He is a conservative to be sure, but as the chief justice of the United States, he is the institutional steward of this court and he cares deeply about the court's legitimacy. And frankly, this court's legitimacy has been in tatters since yeah. the Dobbs decision. People believe that the court is highly politicized. They believe that the Dobbs decision was not a function of law, but rather a function of the change personnel on this court, that we went in one year from being a 5-4 bare conservative majority to a 6-3 conservative supermajority. And he knows that. So he could not have been happy about this. Whether he can actually take steps to do something, whether he can police this conservative supermajority that he is nominally the head of, that is a different story entirely. We have seen him basically hobbled in the face of these five justices who seem bent on doing what they like and not what the chief <coughs> justice wants. And when you talk about justices bent on doing what they like, I mean, the impunity with which Justice Alito appears to have been operating, not only this purported alleged leak of the 2014 uh, Hobby Lobby decision, but potentially the Dobbs leak. I mean, I think everybody thinks if there's someone that leaked this thing, it was probably Justice 
Alito at this point. Do you concur with that? Well, I think if past is prologue and if the first leak was attributable to Justice Alito, then it stands to reason why people would think he's also responsible for the second link. But I would underscore the leak isn't the problem. The problem is that this is a justice who said to the Wall Street Journal that merely questioning the Supreme Court's legitimacy crosses a line. But praying in your chambers with people who have real business before the court does not cross a line. That takes incredible cheek to look the people of the United States in the face and say, you can't question this court and you can't question what we do, even though what we're doing crosses so many lines. What do, and when you when you hear the reporting about what happened in the 2014 Hobby Lobby decision, when we know what happened with Dobbs, do you feel like there are other decisions the court has made that should be revisited to see if anything untoward was happening behind the scenes? I mean, again, this campaign of influence, I think, puts a question mark over everything. Everything has an asterisk, like who's lobbying the court? We don't know if this campaign of influence was successful in changing the minds of any justices. It seems clear that the justices where they were really successful in getting access to, these were already sort of dyed in the wool conservatives, Justice Thomas, Justice Scalia, Justice Alito. We don't know how much influence it had beyond these three. But the fact that the highest court in the United States is being talked about in this way. That's the problem. The court depends on being understood as legitimate in the eyes of the public. It has no army to enforce its decision. It cannot withhold funding the way Congress can. In order for the court and its decisions to have any force in American life, we have to believe that this is a court that's legitimate. Yeah. And to that point, exactly. We're not talking just about the mingling at receptions. We're not even talking just about the praying in the justices chambers. We're talking about trips to Jackson Hole to visit these donors vacation homes. We're talking about special invitations offered by justices on the Supreme Court to these wealthy donors. I mean, the back and forth between this group of basically wealthy activists and Supreme Court justices during moments in which the Supreme Court is hearing cases that directly influence them and are part of their sort of ideological crusade. I mean, it's just such a shocking breach of ethics. The justices have to understand how just destructive that is to the legacy of the court. So it's not even that. I mean, it's not simply that these people are wealthy and they have access, but for most ordinary Americans, the work of the court was incredibly inaccessible until the pandemic when the court began live streaming audio of oral arguments. Otherwise, you had to go down there. You had to wait in line to get in unless you knew the justices and they would give you their seats. No one has this kind of access to the court, but these donors did. And that is the part that's really unfortunate. Like for most of us, if you want to influence the court, you write a law review article and hope that someone reads it and they don't. You write an amicus brief and you hope that someone reads it and like wants to cite it. You don't buy a building across the street from the Supreme Court, which is what this reverend did. He raised over $30 million for this purpose of changing the course of American politics. And part of that project was influencing these justices. And to do that, he bought a building across the street from the court. He got access to court employees. This isn't what ordinary people do if they want to be heard by the court. This is not how justice works, I dare say. Melissa Murray, professor at NYU School of Law and co-host of the wonderful legal podcast, Strict Scrutiny. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We'll be right back. And that does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. 